0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: PLI's SEC Institute, we like to call it the SECI, provides up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative programs and workshops, like the SECI Essentials Workshops, which are a series of half-day interactive virtual workshops that allow attendees to pick and choose content that meets their educational needs on a flexible schedule. The SECI also curates a blog and circulates a quarterly newsletter to keep busy SEC reporting professionals up to speed on the latest disclosure issues. We're going to talk about some of the hot topics in the SECI's latest quarterly newsletter with one of our favorite guests, George Wilson, today on insecurities.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris.
1: And it's actually really good to be with our good friend, George Wilson, again. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you will know that George is far and away our most frequent guest on the show. You have probably heard him on episodes 7, 19, 32, 45,
2: and Chris, this. Is episode 60. 60, Six zero, man. Who'd have thunk yeah. that we'd be here? And thankful to have George along for the ride here. I don't know why he keeps coming back. Uh, but be, we know he's an avid listener <laughs> for and, punishment. Yeah. and definitely both a fresh and wonky professional. For those of you who have not listened to all of those episodes, we'd encourage you to go back. Uh, but those of you who do know, George Wilson is the director of the SEC Institute at PLI. He's been in that role uh, more than 20 years at this point, helping support PLI's efforts, as well as being what he recently called himself as a reporting nerd, a reporting wonk. So if you ever need a a line on, on where things should go in a 10K or why these things are structured that way, George is your man. Uh, He's got a background as an academic, uh, as an assistant professor with the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul. Uh, He's also been a multi-award winner in his educating faculties, both from the AICPA and from the Minnesota State Society. So you guys, you know George, you love him. George, we're so happy to have you back.
3: Chris, Kurt, it is always a delight and a pleasure to be here. And thank you once again for the opportunity to be part of the podcast. You called me a reporting nerd. I call myself a reporting nerd. I have to say, I truly am. If you want to know (laughs) what is in SK item 201D, The equity compensation table and where that should go in your 10K, which, by the way, is not in item five, even though item five in your 10K is SK-201. It should be in item 12 if it's not in your proxy. You want stuff like that, I'm a total nerd. But I have to say, the podcast that you guys have done, all 60 episodes have broadened my horizons and helped me see more aspects of what we do in this world than I could ever have imagined. I mean, all the way from just your recent episode about the enforcement division and the look around the corner, that was brilliant to help understand what happens in the enforcement division and how it works. All the things you've done with insider trading. I mean, the variety of topics is amazing. And, and the episodes you did about the GameStop report, Robinhood. They have helped me put everything in a broader context. And I think it's one of the strongest things I could say when I, and it is the strongest thing I can say when I recommend the podcast, even if you are in a reporting role, listen to this because you'll learn so much. So thanks again for the chance to be here once again. It is always a treat. Thanks, oh, so George, much, George. It's great to
1: have you. Thanks for the kind words. Um, we weren't giving you the hook there. You, you Feel free to keep going. Pile <laughs> on. Right. We love it. You can take a
2: whole episode <laughs> just to talk about what you think of the podcast, George, if you like.
1: All right, well, let me give a little bit of a roadmap so folks know where we're going today. We're not going to get deep into SK, um, but we do want to talk about some of the hot topics in the SECI's March 2022 quarterly newsletter, which will be hitting an inbox near you any day now if you're listening to this podcast. And if you are not already a subscriber, please head on over to pli.edu slash programs slash se CI to join the mailing list. Uh, We were lucky to get a preview of the March 2022 quarterly newsletter in advance of publication. It covers a lot of ground, hits on possible new climate risk and human capital disclosures on cybersecurity, on the FASB, that is the Financial Accounting Standards Board, uh, and what some of the things may be on, on their agenda looking forward. Today, we want to touch on a few of the hot topics in the newsletter that were of particular interest to us here at the Institute. Securities Podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about changes at the PCAOB and FASB's take on Goodwill Accounting. No, that's not a sequel to the classic film starring Matt Damon and Robin Williams, but I understand Chris is working on the screenplay. That's Can right. you confirm that, Chris? Well, is that, okay. Yeah,
2: I'm still working on the the chalkboard uh, uh, math problem uh, in the hallway. So after we get that figured out, we'll be able to write the whole movie.
1: After we talk a little bit about some of the accounting hot topics, yes, I said accounting hot topics. We're gonna switch gears and talk a little bit about SEC disclosure and reporting issues, 10B51 plans and stock buyback disclosures. Chris, you want to kick it off with accounting?
2: I'd love to. Uh, George, we're so glad to have you on here. One of the things that I keep trying to get more coverage of, and and Kurt continually pushes back on, is the coverage of the PCAOB. Uh, the newsletter <laughs> references the, the installment of the new chair uh, with the PCAOB. I, I also want to make the comment of, I've, I've been honored with uh, being asked to help support uh, the George Mason Law School class this semester of accounting for lawyers. And it's been it's been a great experience. The students are very informed and, and educated. Uh, and we voted as a class that anybody who says that the PCAOB should be pronounced as peekaboo should immediately have all of their licensure uh, removed. So we'll be avoiding that uh, that terrible acronym uh, shorthand there. But, uh, you know, the, the newsletter touches on Erica Williams and, and her new role as the chair. Uh, for those of you who have not followed the PCAOB recently, there's been some shakeups uh, last summer, There was a couple of uh, legal cases involving some of the PCAOB board members, uh, as well as a significant overturn uh, in the entire PCAOB uh, leadership uh, presentation. So, George, we'll get into a little bit of that, but first, I want to get into a little bit more about Erica. I don't know if you read uh, GoingConcern.com. It's a relatively popular, if not tongue-in-cheek, accounting coverage. With this new turn of the PCAOB leadership, they put together in the honor of March Madness coming up in a couple months here what it would be like if each of the starting five of the PCAOB were introduced at a basketball game. So I'm going to give you Erica Williams' background in that vein. From the University of Virginia, she is a litigation partner at the law firm Kirkland & Ellis and previously was a special assistant and associate counsel to President Barack Obama. She also spent more than a decade in various roles at the SEC, including as deputy chief of staff to three former SEC chairs, and as Assistant Chief Litigation Counsel in the SEC's Division of Enforcement Trial Unit. Once sworn in, she will be the first woman chair of the PCAOB and the first person of color to lead the audit regulator. Put your hands together for new PCAOB chair, Erica Williams. (laughs) Well
3: done. Excellent. We'll Well have to add the
2: the clapping emoji there, or the clapping sound effect there. So, George, Erica's got an interesting background. Obviously, the the role of the chair is interesting at the PCAOB. How do you see this appointment and and where she might be going in the coming months?
3: I think that is a wonderful area to speculate, and I think that's what we'll do right now, speculate. We don't know a lot about where things will go. Um, uh, You mentioned the turnover. It was pretty dramatic. It was a complete turn Mm -hmm. of the board. Uh, The SEC chair basically removed everybody. And, and it was startling in its, its suddenness. And it's true that the PCAOB has been challenged by many organizations to do more in its regulation of the profession. And so I think we'll see some significant changes in direction, and I think there's some hints about those changes in direction in Erica Williams' background. It, uh, she was an Assistant Chief Litigation Counsel, as you said, at, in the trial unit at the SEC, And she's used to complex securities law issues. And you know, my my favorite question about an audit, Chris, is this. When do you know you're done? (laughs) When do you know you're done with an audit? There's no like bright line. Auditing is a marvelously artful world you can talk about the techniques and the regulations, but I still believe that auditing is more art than science. And so judgment is crucial here. And so I think her background with those very complex kind of issues you find in a typical SEC enforcement action that literally goes to trial, being able to understand those is important. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about is the composition of the board. You know, you go back to the days of Socks way back in 2002. And by the way, are you guys planning an anniversary of Sox episode? I just want to plant that seed. Well, the board has been sort of up and down, you know, it, it's been sometimes very proactive, sometimes less proactive. You can just see that in in the volume of its inspection reports and the content of its inspections reports. So, you know, there's a lot to be thought about here, but one of the things when you go back to the origin of Sox, is that because the accounting profession was in so much trouble in the post Enron, WorldCom Tyco, Adelphia, Quest area, this new regulator that turned the accounting of public companies from a self-regulated industry to a overall outside regulator industry, SOX requires that no more than two of the five board members can be accountants. So it's a majority of attorneys. And of course the chair is an attorney. So I think one of the crucial issues will be how she actually corresponds and works with the accountants on the board. And I, I have to say, overall, I'm pretty hopeful about that. When when you look at the overall inspection statistics, even if you just look at the large firms, mm-hmm. there are, I think, in their last uh, cycle, over 700 uh, instances where firms issued reports where in the judgment of the inspection division, they didn't have enough sufficient competent evidential matter to support their reports. Uh, that's an issue I think that needs to be addressed. Were those really, was that really the situation or was it differing auditing judgment? Um, there's a lot to be done here. And so I think her background as a trial lawyer who's worked with complex security issues And and then you couple that with the overall administrative background she has by serving as chief of staff to three commissioners. I think that's crucial. I think she'll bring a sense of order and administration, regularity, and, and predictability to the organization. And one of the really heartening things I see in that regard is that while the prior board had more or less cut off its outside advisory groups. They're actively moving now to rebuild two kind of new ac- advisory groups. And I don't want to go too deeply into the, the issues there. That's probably more than we need to talk about. So, you know, I think I think we'll see her leadership bring sort of order to the administration of the organization. And I think we'll see the public input process become more robust. And hopefully there'll be a little more clarity in the inspection process.
2: Audit firms are often, and George, hopefully you'll agree with this, you know, always laid blame when something has gone wrong at a company, but you don't really see audits going well, right? It's just kind of assumed and and moved on from. So if there's ever a restatement or, God forbid, some allegation of financial statement fraud, it's where were the auditors? Uh, So it can be Mm -hmm. a little bit of an unfair conversation for auditors generally. It sounds like Erica's background is informed on those issues. And maybe could even get out ahead of some of those discussions prior to there being any need for enforcement against an audit firm or not. Um, You know, criticisms of the PCAOB, especially in the past, you know, five or six years, have been their hands-off approach to actually putting teeth behind some of the reporting of of deficiencies in audits or uh, you know, calling out specific audit firms based on their very uh, very detailed enforcement and and reporting procedure around that. But Erica is probably someone with a background that can support like you said, those very complex and detailed audit-related issues and, and help bring the PCAOB to a place of continued respect and also a, of general acceptance in terms of how they're dealing with the audit profession generally. Erica is but one of the board members of the PCAOB. The other, there are three new board members, we'll say, although uh, folks mm-hmm. may know the name Kara Stein, who's now uh, on the board of the PCAOB, yeah. obviously yeah. long-tenured uh, background in the SEC and, and a variety of other uh, uh, services, uh, notwithstanding her role as a commissioner, uh, we also have uh, Anthony Thompson, who spent 32 years with the U.S. Air Force, uh, as well as with the CFTC. Uh, Christina Ho, who comes from a more traditional uh, big uh, audit firm background, for almost 30 years, serving with one of the Big Four, uh, and then and then uh, carrying over from where serving as the acting chairman in this interim period between when uh, the PCAOB. Uh, leadership uh, left last summer, Dwayne Desparte is here uh, to carry on his work as a board member as well. So all of those folks will come together and and hopefully bring the PCAOB into its new niche, its new focus, and and we'll get to see some experienced professionals professionals doing that. And for those of you Mm -hmm. who'd like to learn more about the PCAOB, feel free to listen back to our episode, Who's Watching the Watchers, in which we talk to a then sitting uh, official with the PCAOB as well as a accounting liability uh, attorney uh, on that episode. Or check out our discussion with Wes Bricker, a former SEC chief accountant, to hear more about that. I know, Kurt, those are two of your favorite episodes of our catalog to date.
1: They are, Chris, if nothing else, because they have been two of the, the highest uh, performing, most liked episodes out of our 60. Pains me to admit that, but buddy, the people... People, and it's not just George, they want more accounting.
2: That's, I'm, I'm glad you're recognizing all of these spoofed email addresses and downloads I've made on those episodes over the years, Kurt. <laughs> don't, don't worry, we're going to cut this bit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, before we move on, George, uh, I don't know, if, is there anything you'd like to ask us related to the PCAOB?
3: Uh, no, I think I'm. Uh, I think we've touched the bases there pretty well. But I do have a couple of things I would thought I thought I would throw in, uh, primarily you know? to focus on my geek factor or build my geek factor, <laughs> and uh, also just to celebrate some of the stuff you guys have done. So first, if it's all right, I've got a little bit of SEC reporting trivia that I thought I would toss in here and there. Let's hear it. Focus on uh, my nerdy reporting person. So here's the first question. I'll, and you guys don't need to worry about answering these. I'll give the answer, but it's a good question, uh, particularly for the accountants in the world around us. It's sort of a surprising answer. And, and the question is seemingly simple. What date is the information in a Form 10-K as of? And you know, if you're an accounting professional, you might be tempted to say, well, period end, you know, your fiscal year end. And, and, and that's kind of how we think about stuff as an accounting professional. If you're a lawyer and you're used to 33 Act registrations, you might say, well, as of the date filed, it always speaks as of the date filed. And that's the 33 Act for sure. But if you go to the 10K instructions, and yes, there actually are 10K instructions you can find (laughs) on the webpage, Uh, General Instruction C2, and I want you guys to vouch for the fact that I'm not looking at a piece of paper. He he, he knows it. He knows it, it, folks. folks. It's true. It's indicative of the sort of hollow and empty nature of my professional life. But in any event, General Instruction C2 says information in a Form 10K is as of the quote, latest practicable date. And that can actually be different for different items. So your number of employees, if you include that in your human capital resources disclosure, you probably need a good payroll cutoff time to get that number. On the other hand, if you have a really material financing and it's very close to the date you're gonna file, you probably need to include that. So I slipped into nerd teacher mode there for a second. That's excellent. Uh, Episode 58. Which was Capitalism, Democracy, and Innovation, where you had uh, an Associate General Counsel from Robinhood. That was amazing. Um, Thank you, you did that well. But fun. you also talked about gamification in episode 52. I loved that one. I have to tell you, right after I listened to that episode, I actually signed up for Robinhood just to see what it looked like. It's fascinating. It's <laughs> <That's> great. And, <laughs> and then you did episode 50 about the GameStop report. So. This is, uh, as I said, you guys have broadened my horizons in ways that are absolutely delightful. So thanks for letting me put those in, guys.
2: All right, George, we want to get your take on Goodwill. Uh, you've got 15 seconds. Go. No, only kidding. Goodwill <laughs> oh, is a long covered way. and complex topic in the accounting world. I'm still pretty sure that, you know, I've tried to work with Kurt over a few 10, 15 hours over the past couple of years. I don't know if Kurt still gets it. Hell, I don't know if most accountants really understand kind of goodwill and all the nuance that's there.
1: Yeah, I was going to say you're you're throwing shade at me, but tell me who actually gets it. I'm not. It's is it even a real thing? I mean, I, it's I, kind of
2: like if know. you have to ask, then obviously you don't know, so you just don't ask about it. Um, goodwill is one of those intangible elements of the balance sheet that's created when companies purchase each other for more than the book value or the carrying value of the assets that is an overly generalized definition of where we see goodwill. Again, as someone who's teaching a class on accounting for lawyers, we don't get too deep into goodwill for the for the attorneys in the classroom. Uh, but we have had some good conversations about how it can be utilized. And George, you followed for the past, God, it's been what, 10 years in terms of discussions from the FASB and others about how goodwill should be treated. You know, the the historical treatment has been you keep it on your books until you think it might be impaired, then you you run an impairment test and decide whether or not it's impaired. Uh, there have been some other discussions about how that should be treated in the past few years, George. Talk to us a bit about those
3: well i I think that we're talking about a hugely complex issue that has a long history. You know if you think about what good real goodwill really is, if you think about the value of a company, so just to paraphrase what you mm-hmm. just said chris um the value of a company is not based on what it owns. It's based on the expected future cash flows and that 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 what the assets it's own it owns. And one of those assets is probably people, which we don't record anywhere, but it's based on the value of its own of, of the future cash flows. And you know, the stock market is theoretically kind of an estimate of that value. Uh, in the market's mind but but what that really means is what a company's totally worth if you want to go buy it is not the same as every all the assets and liabilities on its balance sheet. so when when you compare what you what a company's worth to all the assets and liabilities on its balance sheet, that difference is what we call goodwill. And the only time we ever record it is when we pay for mm-hmm. it. It's really always there. I mean, if you think about a company like Coca-Cola, what's a company like Coca-Cola's most valuable asset? The trademark and the secret formula, which don't appear anywhere in their financial statements. It's worth way more than the stuff on the balance sheet, but we don't record that because we didn't actually pay for it. We accountants never want to make a guess as wild as what that trademark would be worth. So I date back you know, all the way literally to 1975, When in in business combination accounting, we actually recorded goodwill this way we do today, but we amortize it. And the rules were way back then that when you amortized it, you had to pick the right life, but it couldn't be longer than 40 years. So almost everybody used 40 Mm -hmm. years. And then it was in the 90s when the FASB wanted to eliminate a, a really kind of wonky method of accounting for business combinations called pooling that as part of, and it really was a very political process, as part of taking away pooling of interests, which let you combine things at book value, they decided we would move to this no amortization impairment only model. And ever since then, people who understood the impairment world uh, would go through and do the annual impairment test. But to believe that that asset really was kind of indefinite alive forever was probably a little optimistic. So here we are, basically, over 20 years later, kind of, I would almost say, trying to step back to reality, Mm. that the goodwill asset really doesn't last forever. And it should, you know, it does probably get consumed rapidly over a life. So it it actually started many years ago, but the project is getting a little hotter now. The board last talked about it, I think it was January 26th. Uh, in December and earlier meetings, they've really explored and I think are moving towards an amortization with periodic impairment, without periodic impairment testing, but as necessary impairment testing. And right now, they're in their most recent meeting, they actually debated what would be the appropriate level at which to test impairment. We tested something called the reporting unit level now. And Kurt, I apologize for that geeky accounting term right there. <laughs> But it's kind of like an an operating segment level, but one level below, perhaps. And so we test for impairment there. If we move to an amortization plus impairment testing, should we still track goodwill at that level, test impairment at that level, decisions to be made? There's no real expected timeline for this project to finish, but I I have my fingers crossed uh, that maybe this year we'll see this uh, come through as a draft or, a proposed accounting standards update. and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, it, it's tough to guess because there's dissension, I think, among the board members. but i I think personally, I'd have to say I think the right answer is to amortize because I don't think this is an asset that that stays constant. I think it is a waning asset,
2: George. that's so, ai I'm. I don't know. I'm glad you touched on the dissension because a lot of times we think about accounting rules. Uh, Especially the large kind of accounting rule changes that have happened in the past 10 years around revenue recognition and leases. Uh, We look at them now and say, hooray, we got it right and we're all in agreement. Uh, You and I know that is not how the sausage is made. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about the specific elements of each of those changes uh, and, and how they're progressed through the kind of proposal and comment system. Uh, I think 101 letters were most recently received by the FASB as it relates to specifically this goodwill issue and only some of the facets of what might change from a uh, impairment model to an amortization model. So, Kurt, I know I can see on your desk there you've got 101 comment letters printed out. That's going to be your weekly reading this week. Absolutely, so you know it. Absolutely, so, I'm so it, looking forward to it's it. It's a complex process, George. I'm sure the next time, you know, we've we've got a great cadence with you, speaking with you a few times a year. Hopefully, there are updates that we can touch on uh, on Goodwill as it goes forward. If you, if any of you listeners out there are interested in the Goodwill discussion, go to the Fasby website. Uh, there's there's a lot of great things about Fasby. What I love is they summarize in a very linear fashion the entire discussion from initial consideration to proposals to comment periods. All of that's in one place. Uh, so if you're interested in what the Goodwill conversation is about and how it's progressed, uh, FASB.org is the place to go, uh, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. They really put that information together. So this is not a conclusatory uh, discussion of Goodwill. This is more of a stay-tuned uh, discussion because <laughs> there's a lot of important issues here that, that may reflect these companies with significant brand values, things like Coca-Cola or Apple right, that have these large, potentially very valuable uh, elements of their business that aren't currently represented in the financials.
1: All right. So we want to continue to talk about some areas where there may be a change in the wind, but we're going to head on back over to the SEC, which is where, you know, I feel certainly a little bit more comfortable. Right,
3: can, I, can, I toss, can I toss in my next, uh, next trivia yeah. question, guys?
1: Yes, absolutely. So here's my
3: next one for the hosts. My next one for the hosts. Which of the following is one of the Insecurities hosts' favorite TV shows? Is it millions? Is it gazillions? Is it billions? Or is it
2: succession? Wow. Hopefully a multiple choice answer here.
3: Yeah. I thought I'd try to pin you down. You know the two I'm talking about. That's
2: right. Um, Chris, which one are you going to take? You know, I just, I identify a little bit more. uh, Billions has a little bit more of like lawyers yelling. And that's that's a part of my daily life as a practitioner, right? And working with clients who are represented by esteemed legal counsel folks like Kurt Wolf and and his colleagues. So that, that's just a show that resonates a little bit more with me than, than the issues with Succession.
1: See, I thought
2: you were going to go to the other. I thought
1: that the end of that was going to be every day I deal with lawyers yelling, so Succession.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Billions, I think, hits closer to home for me, both obviously excellent shows. And we really enjoyed talking with Jesse Isinger recently about his role as a consultant for Succession. Um, but just in terms of the, the issues that I'm thinking about every day, billions is a little yeah. bit closer to home for me.
3: Yeah. Well, I, episode 31 was when you talked about the billion show. That was absolutely brilliant. And yeah, then uh, the fun. interview the 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 podcast with Jesse Eisenberg in episode 57. Again, great great examples of how you bring the broadness of what happens in the securities world into your discussions and 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 illuminate things for everybody. So you don't have to focus you can be multidisciplinary. So thank you again for those
2: guys.
3: (laughs) Had to have some fun with
2: that. Well, George, stay tuned. We're working on getting connected with the folks who consult for Ozark, uh, the Mm -hmm. relatively popular money laundering related, uh, you know, pop culture (laughs) show. So hopefully we can get on uh, some of those folks to share their insights as well.
3: Uh, That show has some of my favorite performers (laughs) over the years in TV. Oh, my gosh, that's great.
1: Yeah, another great one, but until then, let's head back to one of our you know perennial favorite hot topics, insider trading. We want to talk a little bit about proposed amendments to Rule ten b five one. So back in December, the SEC proposed amendments to Rule ten b five one. For those of you who aren't familiar with the ten b five one, provides corporate insiders an affirmative defense. To Insider trading charges in circumstances where their trades were made pursuant to a written plan that was put in place at a time when they did not have material non-public information. Essentially, in advance, they gave someone instructions to execute a trade, for example, on a certain date or when certain circumstances are met. And by doing that, they sort of sanitize or protect themselves um, from liability for insider trading. If you need a crash course, go back. We talked all about 10B51 with Professor Dan Taylor of the Wharton School and Professor Alan Jagolinzer of the University of Cambridge Judge School of Business. That was episode 38. And then we actually uh, had uh, met with Dan Taylor again on our special New Year's Eve cocktail party episode to talk a little bit about the proposed rules, just a a snippet. Uh, The proposed rules themselves uh, do a few things. They essentially add conditions to the availability of this affirmative defense. Um, They impose new disclosure requirements about policies and procedures, the timing of certain equity compensation awards. They require updates uh, to forms for and five, uh, they impose a cool, potentially impose a cooling off period for certain trades. But uh, George, I know this is one of the things that the SECI quarterly newsletter talks about. So tell us what you're focusing on with respect to the proposed 10b-51 amendments.
3: I think this is a really complicated area where you're trying to make life fairly straightforward for insiders who want to, on some sort of a regular basis, buy stock. And I love the affirmative defenses, but here's my favorite 10B51 trivia question. (laughs) If you have a 10B51 plan, so today, and and I do it very appropriately, I do it when I'm not in possession of material non-public information. So it's right after quarter end, the windows open. I enter into my 10B51 plan, and my 10B51 plan is that I am going to sell shares on a regular basis for the next four months. Mm -hmm. Now, the new rules would actually make me do sort of a certification uh, that I am not aware of material non-public information when adopting the plan. That's one of the things I think is kind of interesting in the new rules. You have to actually kind of certify that you're not aware of any MNPI. And so that's cool. I like that as a change in the rule because it makes it very affirmative. I'm not sure, and and you're in a better place, Kurt, to understand this than I am, what the legal ramifications of that might be. But if you lied in your certification, it seems like that would be, uh, to borrow a technical legal term, bad. That's probably (laughs) a bad thing. And, uh, and one of the new, the new rule would say the plans have to be entered into in good faith. So, okay, so I've done it in good faith. And even with the new rule, I've done my certification. So I've entered in the plan and, and I'm going to sell on a regular basis over the next several months. So once a month, once a month. And then shortly after I enter into the plan, I, I learn or, or my company decides to do, to do a major restructuring. We're going to do a major realignment. And and that means the share price will most likely decline for the next several months. Mm-hmm. Is it okay for me to cancel my 10B51 plan? And oh, you, there's you, actually you... a D I about this that says yes. And the reason it says that is for the simplest of reasons. If I withdraw the plan, no trade's going to take place. <laughs> so I can yeah. actually do it. There's a CNDI... And and uh, you know, there are those little twists and turns in ten B five one plans that kind of make it seem a little bit like the playing field might not be level.
2: That's George, that example sounds like, like a Schrodinger's cat uh reference to how the you know the, the trade may may exist or it may not exist until you cancel it or until the, the acquisition happens.
3: Yeah. You have to kind of open the box that's right. to see.
1: Yeah. Well, it I mean it goes back to and again, I, I'm not going to get too wonky on the on the legal side of this, but oh, it does.
3: Come on, it, go walk. Come on, be it, it, it
1: goes back to the basic elements of an insider trading violation, which is it is essentially judge made over time. But there has to be a, a purchase or sale of securities. And so if you can't point to a purchase or sale there, there really can't be a violation as a legal matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little bit interesting to me that it's that definitive, um, the, the CNDI. And I think actually this may collide with another uh, sort of trend that I think we're seeing at the SEC, which is an, in, an increased focus on... Um, the circumstances in which corporate insiders amend their insider trading plans, because, you know, obviously that's an area where, where there's potential for abuse, right? Depending on the circumstances that lead to the change, the timing of the change. Uh, so, look, I, it, it's relatively settled, I think, as a legal matter. You do have to have some kind of transaction, but um, it, it's, an, it's certainly an interesting area to flag, George.
3: Yeah, so it's, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of interesting is the right word. So, but in any event, the 120 day cooling off period for uh, officers and directors, uh, interesting that the cooling off period for the company, if the company does its own 10B51 plan in connection with the sale or repurchases primarily, uh, which, which is an interesting topic in and of itself, repurchase disclosures, 30 days for that. I think that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see the comment letters about those issues. And so I I, I think and, and you can't have multiple or overlapping trades in the new rule. I like those changes. Um, and, and I think there have been cases where a company, you know, an individual has gone in and out and had plans come, plans go, and you always wonder: Are they really not in possession of material non-public information?
1: I mean, it's it again, like you're hitting all the right notes here, George. <laughs> it's 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 really interesting that they that they're going to require this sort of affirmative statement that that the uh, the insider was not in possession of MMPI at the time that they made or amended the plan. But I think it's important to like step back and think about this in context, which is it, essentially this is insider trading, right? And what they're saying is this is a defense. They're not saying it's not insider mm-hmm. trading. They're saying in these circumstances, we think it's okay. And so I think it, when you look at it like that, it makes sense that they would ask the person to confirm that they didn't have mmpi at the time they set the set up the plan and what i wonder is how that shifts the burden of proof in an enforcement context down the down the line right because they're going to be able to point back to that affirmation and say you know, but you said, because a lot of times now the, the fight is all about what did somebody know at the time they set up the plan. If you've got this extra little piece of evidence where you say like, hey, pinky swear, I don't know anything secret. <laughs> I do think it it changes the
2: the calculus a little bit. That'll be the my favorite legal brief to read, Kurt, that you write in defense of someone. <laughs> well, this comes back, I always go back as a, a Rochester, New York, born and raised uh, guy. You might remember, I think it was uh, a year or maybe two years ago, the the Kodak issue, right? Kodak was being pegged as a potential supplier when coronavirus vaccines were were being rolled out, right? How do we make these? Who could do it? And Kodak being a chemicals company as much as a photography company was slated for that. And there was a significant amount of executive level uh, purchases and sales of stock Literally on the weekend that that announcement went public, and there was a little bit of uh, you know news embargo issues that came out with that too. And they pointed back to listen, we set up these trades weeks, months ago. So you know the SEC was very interested, and and I don't know the actual resolution of that, but I believe they stepped back from any type of charge or violation there. Uh, but that's kind of the defense. Kurt, to your point is this is they listen, we're going to trade stock because we. It's part of our compensation, and we deserve to recognize some of that. But if you do it ahead of time, you can put up a good defense against any of those issues of non-public information coming out down the road.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the publication of information in that case is, was fascinating to me because it did sort of cleanse, um, you know, any of the any of the folks who, who may have traded. Uh, and actually, to me, that comes back to your earlier question, George, about you know what, if for, with respect to a ten k, what is the as of date? I, I always think about. Whether it's a K or a Q, for me it's it, that that is the, the company making a statement. And so for me, the as of is when did they put it out into the into the market? When did they put it into the universe of things known by market participants? So I mean, the answer is much more technical than that. But as a you know, sort of knuckle dragging attorney, I'm like, well, they said it when they put it in the market, of course. <laughs> because it has this cleansing effect. <laughs>
3: Well well, let me ask you a question, Kurt, what do you think about the p- proposed requirements to disclose insider trading policies? I think a lot of companies have, in, in the issue of, of you know social and governance disclosures, sometimes put those policies on their web pages mm-hmm. and, and been comfortable about doing that, but not everybody does. and, and this would now become a requirement. Uh, to disclose, yeah. you know, kind of like the code of ethics stuff that came yeah. out of the in the sox bill uh, after Enron put your code of ethics out there for the world to see. Now your insider trading policy would have to be out there to see. Do you think that's a good step?
1: I mean I could be I could be persuaded either way particularly at, you know at the moment where there is at least one big insider trading case that I think really turns on the language in an insider trading policy and that's the Panawatt case.
3: Yes, that's uh, you a know, fascinating case.
1: For for me it almost feels like in that environment maybe making them public is a good thing because I think what you'll start to see is some commonality in the policies will emerge there will there will become some standard or industry best practices that I think a lot of people will adopt because maybe if they all just threw them up on the website and it all kind of started to coalesce around some some core concepts or principles then everybody would benefit from um from that sort of common common practice and maybe the sec or the courts as they you know apply and interpret the law would come up with a system that makes more sense
3: I disagree. And the Panama case, just so I can remember it right, is that the one where the person traded not in their company securities, but in a related company securities?
1: Yes, this is the case where uh, you know Daniel and Luke cue up the sound effect. This is the shadow trading Panoa case. Face. Dun dun, yeah, exactly. dun. <laughs> Or no, I think it yes, was the, uh...
2: Forget the scary sound effect. <laughs> exactly, but yeah,
1: that that's the one. The the uh, <laughs> the defendant in that case did not trade in. The securities of his employer or even a company that his employer was contemplating a business combination with but a third party that um uh well i think they call it economically linked or something like that essentially they were in the same space so uh, the logic is that what the individual knew about his company could apply broadly to the entire sector um and again the 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 policy in that case is where i think the sec is going to hang its hat and and we'll just have to argue about what we think those policies actually mean or should be applied
3: yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to seeing where that case goes
1: yeah there's a lot of us watching it all right we've got one more uh sort of hot topic that we teased out of the seci's quarterly newsletter for you george and that relates to stock buyback disclosures. Um, Also, back in December, the SEC proposed new rules that would require disclosures about stock buybacks. Um, This actually relates to a system that's been in place since uh, around 2000, 2003, I think is the actual year. uh, The commission adopted rules that were put in place in 2003 uh, by the commission uh, that require companies to disclose what we'll call stock buybacks. Let's keep it simple for this conversation. Uh, George, talk to us a little bit about what the new disclosure requirements might entail.
3: Well, you you framed it perfectly. This is not something that's coming without a little bit of prior disclosure. And And just to geek out a little bit, it's actually SK item 703, which <laughs> applies to Uh, 10-Qs, it's included in the Form 10-Q, and it's included in the Form 10-K. And it's in uh, 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 Part 2, Item 5 of the K. You've got to disclose, and it's interesting, it's by month, by month, Mm -hmm. uh, share repurchases. And you've got to put a bunch of information in there about how much you bought, what was the average price, how much of that was pursuant to a plan, and if you've got a plan, how many shares are still available to be repurchased in the plan. And in, in our workshops, when we talk about this disclosure requirement, people are always scratching their head going, why is this by month? And, and I think the reason it's by month is you're kind of looking for potential price manipulation. If right. you saw a company that did substantial repurchases as it approached the end of the quarter, and then shortly after the end of the quarter, when the company releases earnings and the window opens, you see officers kind of selling stock. Well, was that an effort to get the price per up for those insiders? So, so I think that's kind of the focus of all this. Although obviously share repurchases today are a huge topic, mm-hmm. you know, should companies be using the money that they generate to buy back their shares and get the stock price up for existing shareholders? Should they be using it to expand the, the scope of the business? I mean, there's a lot of political debate about that. So I think this rule kind of, goes towards both of those objectives and it would actually require a new form and, and what SEC reporting person doesn't get excited when there might be a new form. More paperwork. <laughs> more paperwork. Well, more Edgar filings. Yeah, in, that's right? true. Um, yeah. But form SR, form SR would actually require next day reporting of a repurchase, and it would have a bunch of details. It would have the date, the class of securities, the number of securities. You would actually have to disclose whether that was pursuant to a ten b five one plan, and you would also have to disclose if you were using a an interesting safe harbor for share repurchases that's in Rule ten b eighteen. So I I think that it's earlier disclosure and and kind of uh, time more timely. I'm interested to read the comments about Mm -hmm. that because does it need to be a next day disclosure or is every quarter adequate? And could you just include some of this information in your quarterly reporting about share repurchases? But then there'd be a whole bunch of uh, enhanced, I want to say qualitative disclosures. You'd have to explain the objective of those share repurchases and your rationale for those share repurchases. Um, and that's interesting. I, you know, do you need to explain why you're repurchasing the shares? Is that a appropriate issue for the SEC to ask companies to disclose? And then do you have any policies for your officers about, and directors about whether they can buy or sell shares in that time period about when a share repurchase is going to occur? That's getting back to the are there insiders benefiting question here. And so I, I think that there's a lot happening here. Um, And and it's focused primarily on bad stuff. I mean, as an investor, I want to know when you're buying back stock. But if you just tell me how many shares you buy back each quarter as an investor, that's probably good enough information for me. But if I'm really looking for evidence of wrongdoing, I probably want more information. So it's an interesting disclosure in my mind.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It it reminds me of a conversation we had with Commissioner Peirce where she sort of put things on a spectrum from like need to know to nice to know, and uh, in that in that conversation, we were really talking about some of the ESG disclosure requirements that may be, you know, on the horizon. Um, but th- the same is true here, right? It's a it's a balancing act. You know, what what is how do you appropriately calibrate that to get investors the type of information that they are actually interested in? Actually might need to know uh again as a lawyer we often think about that as the type of information that would influence someone's decision to buy or sell securities and, and how far past that line do you want to go if at all and so i think that's the kind of balance you're, you're talking about george
3: are 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 we going to make companies disclose information that could help us find bad acting yeah you know it just makes me think of the episode you guys did with Thinra there's so much that FINRA does that's looking for people who are doing things that aren't necessarily appropriate.
1: Yep. And we're going to actually hear more about that in just a couple of weeks with, uh, with one of FINRA's senior enforcement staff members,
2: Chris Kelly. So stay tuned, security's listeners. Great lead-in, George. We got to get you here more often to do these.
3: <laughs> no, I, I'd like it. You guys have broadened my horizons in so many ways. In such enjoyable ways. This is the other thing to add here. All right. Well, can I, can I throw in one more uh, SEC reporting nerd <clears throat> trivia question? Right. Uh, this yes. is one that's really important as, as many of us are in 10K season. And it's a mistake that you see in a lot of 10Ks. So, it, And it's really nerdy. It's about item numbers. So there are new item numbers in 10K. Chris, you're um, up. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have run
2: it. Couldn't have run off camera faster, Hunker.
3: <laughs> okay, so so many most most listeners probably know that item six in Form 10K, which used to be selective financial data, that's gone. Do you need to include item six anymore? And then there's a new item, item nine C, which is part of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act disclosure Regiment, which won't apply to that many companies. Other than those who have an auditor in China or Hong Kong, where the PCAOB, kind of a link back to our first topic, where the PCAOB will, is not able to inspect that auditor's work. We have to make a bunch of disclosures about foreign ownership in that situation. Not going to apply to most of us. Do you need to include those item numbers or can you just leave them out because they don't matter?
2: You got to include them, George. You don't want your numbering to get off.
3: That's exactly right. You got to <laughs> keep the numbers straight and... There's actually an Exchange Act rule. If you go on oh, wow. to sec.gov, go to the rules. It's rule 12B-13, which is on page 1146 of our current SEC <laughs> reporting handbook.
2: Again, he doesn't have the book um, in front of him. He knows yeah, that offhand.
3: <laughs> bare, but just, just uh, in my head, hollow and empty. <laughs> a lot of stuff in here that doesn't matter to anybody, <laughs> but... but um, but but no, and, and that's a very common mistake. And, you know, you might look at that and go, who cares? But when you're an SEC reviewer and you see someone who does something that's k- kind of a, really a minutiae issue, but they do it wrong, mm-hmm. that's going to convey an impression about your care with respect to the rest of your reporting. Mm-hmm. I love so, it. Good to get the details right. Uh, plus, I thought it would be good for a laugh. You, so you thanks for it. that. <laughs> thanks for that. I promise that's the last one. No, well.
2: That. George, we're going to turn the tables on you. Our fun segment, you talk a little bit about the empty space in your head, but your memory is uncanny, especially when it comes to these wonky uh, reporting topics. And also, you have brought up a few questions about past episodes of the Insecurities podcast. Again, thank you for touting those episodes and, and connecting them back to our topics today.
3: My pleasure. This might be a little
2: awkward. We're going to quiz you on your appearances on the PLI's Insecurities oh, no. Podcast, so Kurt and I are going to read you a quotation that you spoke on a prior episode. You have to tell us what were we talking about when you said these words, and you know we've covered a variety of SECI quarterly newsletter topics. They're all going to be a little flavored here, but we're interested if you can nail down uh, what conversations we were having when these quotations were said. All right, number one, here we go. Quote: I think it will be step by step. I don't want to say baby steps, but moderately sized steps. And I like your thought about how this commission will react. I don't think there's a need for a dramatic reaction. End quote. George, what were we talking about? And if you name the episode, you get uh, another Insecurities <laughs> Podcast mug.
3: Oh, uh, I'd love to have a matched pair. Um,
2: Baby steps, stressed. moderately sized steps. No need for a dramatic reaction.
3: Why well, I'm tempted to say ESG disclosures, but
2: uh, ding, ding, ding! We'll stop you there because you're right. We were talking about the Clayton Commission back on in March of 2020, how they would look at ESG disclosure rules. You're one for one, George. you you have that okay. that sterling that bear trap of a memory. That's primed
1: well. That's
3: lucky for me. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's lucky for me.
1: The, the extra good thing about that quote is that we could just plop it in this episode, and I think it's still right on the money. That's it, yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Quote number two. I think that these actions really help mainstream investors. There's clearly enough stuff happening out in the world. There are plenty of bad actors who are doing things that aren't appropriate. And inside a company, it is really challenging to be the person who tries to stop it. All right, what were we talking about?
3: I'm 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 drawing a little more of a blank on this one. So inside a company, it's really hard to be the person who's trying to stop it.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Lots of bad people out there doing stuff in the world and inside the company. Hard to be the person who tries to stop it.
3: Oh gosh, guys! I'm told I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess. Um, insider trading? <laughs> no, I, I I'm stumped. I'm stumped.
1: All right, so this one goes back to episode 19 in September 2020, and we were talking about possible uh, new or revised
2: SEC whistleblower rules.
3: Oh, whistleblower. Oh, Oh. my God. Overlapping issues. We'll we'll give
2: you partial credit. You showed your work.
3: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I like it. Seriously. Man, those are some of the best episodes you guys have done. Um, The whistleblower episode. The one with the whistleblower attorney was fantastic.
1: Yeah, Matt Stock. That was an early episode. That's, that's right. a that's a deep track, George. Oh my
3: god. No, I mean seriously. I, you know, in our big conferences, we always have uh an hour of uh, ethics, regulatory ethics. And included in that discussion is the whistleblower program at the SEC. Uh, which I think is a crucial safety net for everyone. Yeah. Yep. And I always mention those episodes. Awesome. Specifically. Go listen to those.
1: That explains why we see them tick up every once that's in a right. while. It's not just that
2: my spoof well emails
3: be. getting out Boy, there. <laughs> I got twenty twenty. Gosh, that's like two years ago. I can barely that's remember. It's unbelievable. So
1: it's been a it's been a while. Um, yeah. You know, your answers were fantastic. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, you may be second mug eligible, but we'll have to take that back to the overlords. That's right. Yeah. Overhead. Overhead's going
2: up across the board, George. Supply chain issues, we don't
3: know. I understand that. Yep. That's my standard answer for why I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I'm having supply (laughs) chain (laughs)
2: problems.
3: (laughs) But most mornings like this, I'm so excited to get started, I can't stop myself.
2: George, thanks so much for joining us. We want to give you an opportunity. I know you're always out there with PLI promoting new new programs. What's coming up in the next few weeks that folks should consider tuning into?
3: Oh, thanks for that, Chris. And yes, you earlier mentioned our essentials workshops. We had planned on doing those for several years and pivoted much more quickly at the onset of the pandemic. But we've built actually six modular workshops. They're little three-hour things. We call them our essentials curriculum. There's a special starting point for lawyers and a special starting point for financial reporting people. And then we build. We're doing our MDNA Essentials workshop, three hours deep dive into MDNA. Totally a good time. Uh, we're gonna do our 10Q uh, proxy and uh, 16, 16 one a week from now. Then the whole sequence will start again uh, later in the spring and a couple times in the summer and fall. Those are fun. And they're all with Zoom, so you can interact with people in the Zoom room. You can ask questions. We get a lot of conversations. It's really neat. That's
2: That's great. Excellent, George. Well, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to our next conversation with you in a few months.
3: Oh, thank you again so much, Chris and Kurt. It's always a delight.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson of the SEC Institute at PLI. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, InSecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of InSecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.